morning. You're listening to 2XXFM 98.3. The program is Subject ACT. For the next half an hour, I delve into local current affairs from an independent community standpoint. It's Monday the 18th of July. I'm Becca Posterino. Today, I meet an erudite social commentator who draws focus to the outcomes of the federal election. Van Bandem is a columnist for The Guardian Australia theatre maker and novelist. Her political position is crystal clear. In our conversation, Van highlights the inadequacies of neoliberalism, the fundamental principles of the Labour Party, Pauline Hanson's return to federal politics and the outcome of the federal election. Van's ardently feminist gaze sheds light on what she perceives as a failure on both sides of politics to adequately address women's issues during the protracted federal election campaign. Thanks for joining us today on 2XXFM. 98.3, Subject ACT. Coming up now, Van Bandem deconstructs the outcomes of the federal election. I'm Becca Posterino. This morning we're speaking to Van Bandem. She's a columnist for The Guardian Australia, theatre maker and novelist. Welcome to the program, Van. Hi. Were women's issues a priority to either major party at this year's election, considering the growing incidence of violence against women in Australia? Well, I think we can definitely say that the Liberal Party weren't particularly engaged with women's issues. Unfortunately, what we've seen over the term of the Abbott and then Turnbull government was, in many cases, enormous amounts of uh, insensitivity to the specific issues of women within the electorate, and it's sometimes disrespect. Certainly, in the first half of uh, the Liberal government's term, you had Tony Abbott effectively trolling the electorate by announcing himself the Minister for Women. And unsurprisingly, we didn't see a lot of initiatives that did much to redress the imbalance of opportunity that's faced by women in the electorate. One of the most talked about issues of the past few years has, of course, been the awareness of the amount of family violence and violence against women within the community. And obviously, because you had Rosie Batty as Australian Mm -hmm. Year, very public on that issue. It was extraordinary to consider that at the same time you had a Liberal government run a $30 million awareness campaign around family violence and violence against women. You also had that same government actively cutting the services that are used at the front line of helping women to escape violent situations. And for me, one of the the issues that I was most appalled by was that the coalition government took money out of the community legal centres, who are the ones that women flee to in order to get the protection of the law when they're leaving violent and vulnerable situations. That, for me, was a massive, massive issue. You can't run an awareness campaign encouraging people to seek help and then take the help away. That's actually a form of structural cruelty that compounds like the, the vulnerability of women in the community. How can people understand that rather than just seeing it as liberal labour? That's a functional policy that's having an effect on women. Well, there's a very obvious difference in the two parties about the way that they structurally engage the notion of discrimination and disadvantage for women as opposed to for men. I mean, the reality is that when you're a woman who's in a vulnerable household uh, and you're subject to violence, you're 
opportunities to engage equally in society are massively diminished. What people have got to understand around issues like family violence and abusive relationships is there's an actual answer to the question, why didn't she leave? And that's because women are at their most vulnerable to murder when they are at the point of choosing to leave an abusive relationship. Now, what I explain to people in the simplest terms is that if you are a woman fleeing family violence and you are bringing your children with you, in order to establish basic legal protection, there are seven different court orders that you have to obtain in order to protect yourself, protect your children and protect your property. Seven different orders. Now, if you don't have legal representation, if you don't have legal access, you are not in a position to gain the basic protection that enables you to leave that situation. And that's why funding community centres and community legal services are so important. There's the issue as well of looking at, and this is a big issue in my home state of Victoria, of looking at the issues of providing emergency housing for people who are fleeing vulnerable situations. That is a governmental responsibility. It's a state responsibility and it's one that the Victorian state government is grappling with. In the state of New South Wales, we just saw the horrific decision made by the Baird government to combine homelessness services uh, that stripped the speciality away from uh, dedicated refuges for women fleeing family violence and put women and their families, vulnerable women and their families, into the same homelessness, homelessness services as people who are recovering from long-term addiction, um, people with other kind of life management issues, uh, people who were long-term homeless, like very vulnerable and chaotic environments that are not appropriate way to house people who are fleeing family violence situations. So we've got a situation in this country where there are a lot of people who are really big on talk, but they're not so up on what the actual results are. The other issue around issues of family violence is that it's been a core demand of the Australian trade union movement to write into industrial awards the provision for women to access domestic violence leave and be covered for the period that it takes them to move out of uh, an abusive relationship to actually gain paid days of work that enable them to get, a, to, to get away from vulnerable and violent situations. And this, of course, has been opposed by the Liberal Party, um, who actually said, Michaela Cash, the Minister for Women, actually said that she thought that domestic violence leave provisions would make women less employable. The following excerpt is from ABC's Q&A program, which aired Monday the 11th of July, where Van's response to fellow panellist Steve Price concerned the importance of self-awareness regarding attitudinal behaviours regarding violence to women. Steve, do you know what you're doing? Do you have any understanding what you're doing? This man has given us an extremely upsetting story about something that's happened. Yes, I can hear and as you, well as you are can. defending yourself in a context where we have to have a conversation about cultural attitudes that treat women differently. And you cannot create paradigms where there are blokes who have this kind of behaviour and we are just looking at women who live in the result this. of cultural attitudes that treat women differently. Men can and be this just is as the upset situation. About Steve, can, uh, well, I'll Steve, give you a chance to respond in a moment. But, uh, Thank Van, you. Van... You're proving my point very excellently about the attitudes that create these kinds of problems. challenges are multifaceted. 
One, we have to stop creating these these binary men are this, women are this. Masculinity is this, femininity is this. Men have high status, women have low status. You can speak down to these people, but these people are not allowed to speak back up. That we can make jokes and it's all jokes and, oh, yeah, they apologised and that's fine. But on the receiving end is the ludicrous proportion of women yeah. who do I endure violence. I think you're just being hysterical. It's probably my ovaries making me do it, Steve. <laughs> Interesting conclusion to draw from something so as fundamental as legal protection when you're fleeing domestic and family violence. Well, this is the thing. I mean, let's not forget that when Macaria Cash was confronted with the reality that there is a gender pay gap in this country, that women overwhelmingly have not achieved equal pay. Like in my own industry of the media, there's a gender pay gap, women to men, of 23%. The gender pay gap actually kicks in when women enter the workforce. In the 15 to 19-year-old age bracket, there's 11% gender gap already. So gender pay gaps are not about women having children. And when Michaela Cash was asked what she was going to do about this, she actually told the media that she... She thought that men should just take lower-paying jobs in order to restructuralise the, the gap. So we've obviously come out of three years in Australia where, you know, respect and attention to structural disadvantage in the workplace, legally in the home, has, has not really been paid. What should the media do differently this time around? in regards to Pauline Hanson and the One Nation Party. She received a lot of negative attention that seemed to almost give her exposure and popularity to those that agreed with her ideology. What should we do differently? Well, I think what we've got to be really clear about is why Pauline Hanson has the appeal that she does. And it's not just because Pauline Hanson is a racist. The racism is actually... Uh, part of what makes her recognisable and accessible to a lot of people. I mean, there are lots of racist people in the Australian community and I don't think we can pretend that's not a thing. But to understand why she is drawing those votes, you also have to look at the, the messages that she espouses about inequality. Like Pauline Hanson, for her entire political career, has always talked about, you know, we're being swamped as if there's an invasion of evil foreigners who are taking our rights and our privileges as Australians away. Now, that comes from a really established sense of paranoia in sections of the electorate about inequality. And if you look at who votes for Pauline Hanson, there's a pattern that people who vote for her are people from some of the poorest, most like, disadvantaged communities in Australia. Like, overwhelmingly, that's the base of her vote. We have a problem in Australia with inequality. You know, the incredible prosperity that Australia has enjoyed because of things like the mining boom has not been shared equally. So you take a person who's living in reduced economic circumstances, who's probably on a casualised working contract because 40% of Australians are working casually. You look at people who are trying to understand why there are fewer health services, that they're paying more to see a doctor, that their local school is getting run down, that we don't seem to be able to be providing basic services to everybody and equally. That becomes a very fertile market for ideas that blame 
foreigners. You know, in her first incarnation, she was blaming Asians. In her current incarnation, she's blaming Islam. And to create these sort of boogie monsters of outsiders who are coming and taking our things away. Like, the real issue is that there's enormous amounts of disadvantage. There's poverty. There's, like, a, a lack of opportunity. There's economic instability. And there's workplace instability. People get very anxious around their economic circumstances in these times. And why wouldn't they? So you can see this, there's a pattern throughout the world where as Western societies have become more unequal, this is the case in France, this is the case in America, this is the case in the UK, that you have these populist parties who try and excuse inequality by pointing at asylum seekers or refugees or immigrant groups as the cause of social disquiet. It's not true, but we have to deal with the underlying problem that societies that are more equal are ones that don't perpetuate this kind of xenophobia and hate. We protect our minority groups and our marginalised communities by ensuring that there are levels of economic equality for everybody. That is the only way you can defeat Hansenism. Is a hung parliament a political nuisance in your view? Look, not necessarily. I mean, we've got to realise that hung parliaments represent the will of, it, of the electorate. And as a democratic country with a representative system of government, we have to address that this is how the people have chosen to be represented. Um, certainly, my opinions on this issue change depending on what kind of political window that we're in. And certainly three years ago, six years ago, I was very much in favour of hung parliament as I saw them as an opportunity to have a greater diversity and inclusion in political debate. But the situation we're in now, and for me, the overwhelming uh, political challenge that I believe we face is that of climate change mm -hmm. and how we are going to transition our economy to have more opportunity rather than less because of our obligations to confront the reality of climate change. And the trade union movement calls like the, the campaign to use climate change as an economic quality you were just saying that climate change needs to be forward in your view. The political reality is that hung parliament uh, from the 2010 election to lead us towards a, a more uh, enfranchised and permanent policy approach to dealing with the challenge of climate change. That's reality. Uh, the Greens may run on environmental, many environmental policies, but their ability to affect any change has... and if this is borne out in reality, been very minimal. Those of us who are very involved in the trade union movement look at climate change as an opportunity for us to reorganise our economy and our society along fairness and sustainability for workers. And at this point in time, what I think is most necessary to achieving progressive social change and an equalising of opportunity, um, environmental environmental sustainability and the stability of established working class communities is I think that we need a majority Labor government that can negotiate environmental and and social outcomes to be equal and to be fair. That's my position now mm. because of the reality in which we live. You're listening to 2XXFM 98.3. The program is Subject ACT. I'm Becca Posterino. That was my conversation with Van Bandem, playwright, novelist and columnist for The Guardian Australia on the outcomes of this year's election.
I also included a recent excerpt from ABC's Q&A program, which aired Monday the 11th of July, where Van's response to fellow panellist Steve Price concerned the importance of self-awareness regarding attitudinal and cultural behaviours regarding violence to women. Coming up, more of that conversation with Van Bandam on Local Current Affairs Program, Subject ACT, 2XXFM 98.3. Climate change was certainly not featured or prioritised in this campaign. Do you think that climate change is politically passe to the major parties or do you think it simply just got submerged under other issues that were given more representation in the media? Well, we have the issue in Australia where there's still a very large percentage of the parliamentary Liberal National parties who don't believe in climate change. There are climate change denialists in those federal parties Mm. and that is why we have seen absolutely shocking inaction on any kind of policy approach to dealing with the challenge of climate change. I was at the Paris conference and was absolutely shocked at the attitude of the Australian government, which was quite obstructionist around the agreements that the nations of the world were trying to reach at that conference. And I came back very changed in my opinions about what should be the way forward. Um, Certainly, you have the Greens who are very, who were way ahead of everybody else on recognising the danger of climate change. But as I've said before, their ability as a party to affect any kind of policy permanence or political change has been proved to be minuscule, if anything. Mm -hmm. In terms of the Labor Party, you've certainly got a political party there that has been on a very long journey to recognise that you know, climate change is actually an opportunity for us to introduce uh, a fairer and better economy to Mm. restart manufacturing. And a lot of people in the environmental movement worked very hard on on advising the Labor Party to change their policy around environmental sustainability to uh, consider in nuanced policy detail the ways that communities could be brought with the environment movement into reorganising around the challenge of climate change. And for me, the most positive political event of the past few months is that you had a Labor Prime Minister in Daniel Andrews um, Mm. announce a 40% Victorian renewable energy target in my home state of Victoria, Mm. which had 10,000 jobs attached to it. And this is what I mean about just transition and the opportunity is that there are going to be jobs created in Victoria that deal with the problem of climate change Mm -hmm. and doesn't leave communities behind um, in the way that we readjust our economy in order to stay environmentally sustainable. That, I think, is a massive political victory for everybody who who believes in social fairness as well as environmental sustainability. So there is economic opportunity taking genuine action on climate change? Well, climate change enables us to restart Australian manufacturing. It enables us to look at distribution systems and point-of-origin manufacturing and to say, you know, we are a highly educated, very skilled nation, but our manufacturing sector has been dying as our manufacturing has been offshored over the past 40 years. This is our opportunity to restart processes where we create well-paid blue-collar jobs that sustain entire communities, you know, and certainly building the infrastructure of climate change enables us to do that and enables us to justify economic investment from the government in 
in manufacturing, in the development of industry, and to you know redistribute wealth throughout the economy um, to all of the classes that mm-hmm. labour within it. And certainly, I think that is a great opportunity. So the trickle down effect's not working. The trickle-down effect never worked. Everybody knows it never worked. It has been conclusively debunked as an economic theory for the past 30 years. I mean, you only have to look at the modelling that was done around the the $50 billion of tax cuts promised to to corporations by the Liberal Party. You had Goldman Sachs, which is the merchant bank that Malcolm Turnbull used to work for, Mm. like say conclusively that 60% of those tax cuts were going to flow immediately into increased dividends for offshore investors. Now, why the Australian taxpayer is funding the profits of uh, of shareholders who live in other countries mm. is beyond me, especially when we're looking at challenges like climate change, like skilling a workforce for the next generation, like increasing educational opportunity, like you know building a care infrastructure for an ageing population, like expanding uh, best practice healthcare throughout the country and communities, or even just building a world-class NBN is absolutely shocking to think that that was a policy taken to the people at an election. Does the political atmosphere we find ourselves in in Australia reflect a growing disparity with the major parties? Well, the political atmosphere we find ourselves in in Australia is that there's been disillusionment with the major parties because both major parties were committed to the project of neoliberalism. And in the 1980s, under the leadership of particularly Paul Keating, you had Australia massively readjust its economy in order to participate in, you know, a globe like yes. a new globalised reality of trade and exchange. Now, under the leadership of Paul Keating, like certainly. Um, there was a massive division between what were considered traditional labour values, economic protectionism, um, certainly socialisation of industry, uh, government ownership of public infrastructure. And under Keating, there were privatisation. You know, there was a a devolution of economic control. It was the floating of the dollar. There was a removal of trade barriers. All of these things happened under Keating. Now, under Keating, the economy was adjusted in such a way that prosperity did flow to the overwhelming majority of Australian people. I look at my own family that over the course of three generations got itself out of poverty because of the opportunities that occurred in the economy. The problem was that once Keating was gone and had laid the foundations uh, of a a new neoliberal economy, that all it took was one conservative government under John Howard to massively readjust the levers um, to to disperse wealth to the top at the expense of the middle and the bottom. And certainly we're one of the many countries where inequality has been rising. Um, And I think that there's a lot of resentment towards the Labor Party that's residual in the community towards the decisions that were made that led us to this point. And certainly over the period of the the Rudd-Gillard-Rudd um, era in Australian politics, I, as a person who grew up in a working-class family who mm-hmm. has, you know, left-wing social values, did not feel represented by the Labor Party at all. Mm-hmm. But I think the interesting phenomenon of Shorten, if Shorten's um, leadership team have recognised the mistake that Labor made to, you know, turn themselves into like a cuddlier version of the Liberal Party, mm-hmm. like Liberals with hearts. And certainly the policies that Shorten took to the election were the most progressive, certainly the most progressive on economics that the Labor Party have promoted in years. And that was how they won my vote back. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly, I think that there's that disillusionment with 
you know, that disappointment with Labor is still a very large part of the vote that goes to the Greens. Um, but I also think there's a massive amount of disillusion with the Liberal Party because there are communities of people who share the socially conservative values of the Liberal Party, you know, who, um, and I think certainly Hanson voters are a really good example of this, as are... Um, as are communities around the Xenophon though, small businesses, mm -hmm. you know, people who are traditionally more in the conservative camp, I think they've been affected by rising inequality, certainly. Like, if you're a small business owner and all of a sudden all of the working-class people who you sell products to have less money to spend because their health care costs are higher, because they're spending more money on education, because their work isn't mm -hmm. secure, because they've been casualised, like, you're going to notice a massive effect in your ability to run your enterprise. And I think certainly you can see the drift away in the primary votes from both of the major parties being a, a symptom of that. Are the Greens a genuine threat to both? No, the parties? Greens are not a genuine threat. Uh, the Greens vote has dropped since their golden year in 2010. The Greens recorded an 11.3 primary then. Um, it dropped down to about, I think, 8.5 in the 2013 election. And in this election, it's, it's back up to 9.9, .9, but it's still less than 10% of the vote. I live in a green seat. I live in, well, the only green seat. I live in Annenbant, seat of Melbourne. Mm. And it's very obvious in this community that there are demographic factors that influence the vote for the Greens. Like overwhelmingly, Greens voters in the seat of Melbourne are people who work in the arts community, who work in ed higher education or work in digital industry. Now, they're all very fun industries to work in. That's not representative of the vast yes. bulk of the Australian people. There have been some interesting demographic surveys that have come out um, over the past couple of days looking at the boost-by-boost boost election results in Wills and Batman, which are two Victorian mm. seats the Greens thought they would have a chance of winning. And the Greens' boots like, almost entirely reflect the more prosperous elements of the electorate as opposed to the working-class uh, elements of the electorate, which are further north and further west. You know, they're absolutely, you know, heaven on human rights issues and they say all the right things on the environment. But at the end of the day, you know, government is about the allocation of resources, the economic framework in which you make decisions, favours uh, either equality or favours privilege. And I don't think the Greens have actually even thought out which side of that discussion they really sit on. So you have somebody like Adam Bant who um, talks a really great game about equality, but then you have somebody like Nick McKim from Tasmania who in his maiden speech um, talks about how great Uber is and how he'd like an Uber model to apply from everything from childcare to labour hire and he's essentially promising a deregulation of the labour market. Mm -hmm. Well, for Australians who are already doing it very tough in the deregulated sections of the economy, that's not exactly uh, an economic program for prosperity, let alone equality. Is the privatisation of Medicare just one step closer to aligning with an American system of health care? And what would this mean to Australians? Yes, absolutely. I mean, the Liberal Party fundamentally believe in the ideology of neoliberalism. Malcolm Turnbull, for all of his leather jackets and fancy you know, talk on the environment, is a hardcore neoliberal. I think it was very uh, revealing that in his first speech to the Australian electorate as Prime Minister after he rolled Tony Abbott, he pledged to govern in the interests of freedom, the individual and the market. He didn't mention the community, the people or Australia, which I thought was quite revealing. And certainly their economic ideology is based on the notion that the public shouldn't own anything 
um, that public ownership is, you know, akin to socialism. That is an ideology they wish to destroy. They wish for more corporate power. And they genuinely believe that um, the rich deserve more privilege because they're better because they're rich. I mean, that's a very simple encapsulation of liberalism and, uh, like, conservatism, uh, neoconservatism and neoliberalism. And these are certainly the ideologies that the Liberal Party are founded on. Um, and certainly I don't think that anyone could reasonably expect them to defend the Medicare system, which, of course, represents uh, what is known as one of the five pillars of the welfare state and is a, is a product of decades of socialist thought, you know, a belief that all human beings are created equally and therefore deserve to participate in society equally. The five pillars of the welfare state are education, health, unemployment benefits, pensions and a right to public housing, that these are the way that you redistribute resources throughout the economy so everybody enjoys a quality of opportunity. And we get, before there was Medicare, something like 30% of Australians used to die of preventable causes because they couldn't afford the health care that they needed. And certainly you speak to anybody in America about what their health care system is like, the massive um, disadvantages that are encoded in that system that affect everybody and their chance to participate equally in society is extraordinary. I mean, do people realise that privatised healthcare in the United States now accounts for 17.5% of their GDP, massive money-making industry where a few people are made very wealthy at the expense of the overwhelming majority of the population. Healthcare is the single uh, largest source of bankruptcy to Americans. And that is the kind of structural inequality that means that the single most likely predictor of future wealth in the United States is not education, it's not talent, it's inheritance. The amount of money that you inherit in the United States is now what sets you up for opportunities later in life. Well, that doesn't sound like all people are born equal to me. Van, thank you so much for your insights today. Thank you so much. I talk about this stuff all the time. Um, <laughs> You're listening to 2XXFM 98.3 on local current affairs program subject ACT. That was a conclusion of my discussion with Van Banden, social commentator, columnist for The Guardian Australia and theatre maker. Next week, I meet with ACT Government Minister Mick Gentleman to clarify the recent decision to wind back the greyhound racing industry in the ACT. I also speak to CEO of RSPCA ACT, Tammy Van Dange, for her response to the ACT Government's decision. Tomorrow, Doug Dobing hosts Tuesday's edition of Subject ACT. Coming up next on 2XXFM, Community Radio Network's topical storytelling, all the best. Join us each weekday, 8.30 till 9am on Subject ACT to independent local current affairs or listen live at www.2xfm.org.au backslash listen. I'm Becca Posterino on 2XXFM 98.3. Enjoy your day.